Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Today we have Charlie Sheldon. He is a writer. He has three books. He wrote Strong Heart, Adrift, and The Upcoming Totem. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have a really great bio, and I'm really curious because you went to Yale, you went to UMass, and yet you worked on shipping and all that. Can you give us a brief history of how you got into all of that and how long you went to Yale? Well, <laughs> I went to Yale for four years and finished. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, then I went to graduate school at, at UMass in wildlife biology and resource management. Mm-hmm. The summer between my college graduation and my start of graduate school, I was bartending on Cape Cod, Massachusetts for a summer job, and I didn't like it very much. And I noticed some fishing boats working out of a town called Chatham, and I so I want to do that. So I, I, I hated bartending. So I, <laughs> I, I uh, began pestering these people at the dock and it's not easy getting on a fishing boat. Anyway, I finally, I finally argued my way onto a couple of boats and eventually ended up with this guy and fished for them all summer. And then I went to graduate school, but I really liked fishing. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and, and at that time, so I ended up fishing full time after I finished graduate school and in between but at that time, there was a big struggle going on because all of the foreign fishing fleets were right off New England catching all the fish. And so there's this huge fight mm. to extend the fishing limit to 200 miles from 12 miles. And I got involved with that when I was a fisherman a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then when I worked further as a consultant, I worked with the new law that was expanding the jurisdiction for fishing rights in the United States. Yeah. Um, so that's I pretty did, close to our, our shores that they were able to fish. Well, that, that's the way it's always been. It used to be three miles. Then it became 12. There was a big fight between Britain and Iceland about British boats fishing. And Iceland was the first country to claim 200 miles. Mm-hmm. Now almost all countries have claimed it. And only their boats can fish in, the, in their exclusive economic zone is what they call it. Mm-hmm. But... So the, for the first 15 years of my career, I was in the fishing industry. I was either a fisherman, and I did that for several years, or I was a consultant working in the fishing industry. I went to work at the, in New York because they wanted to rebuild a steamship terminal to handle fishing boats. Mm-hmm. So I was working for the Port Authority of New York, New York and New Jersey in, in the 64th floor of Tower Number 1 of the World Trade Center. And, and uh, that was a talk about a change from I'd literally been fishing on a crab boat off Norfolk, Virginia. And two days later, I'm in the 64th floor of the trade center in the one suit I own saying, well, I think I'm going to, anyway, long story short. So that's how I, I got into that. I really enjoyed the fishing. I enjoyed being at sea. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Cause I mean, you went to Yale. I mean, these are not, these are schools that are pretty prestigious. Well, they're good schools. Yeah, they're good schools. And, and, and the education was great. And I used, actually used quite a lot of it. But then when I, I went to New York, they wanted to rebuild a steamship terminal into a fishing 
port. And as I could write a book about that and, and it didn't work out, but that got me working for a port authority. And I worked for port authorities for the next almost 30 years in New York and then Seattle and then in Bellingham, Washington. And I mean, it was, you know, a waterfront dealing with ships. And then when I came, I came to Seattle mm -hmm. in 1990 and this, this actually has something to do with the books I've, I've written. Yeah. I came to Seattle in 1990, and by then I'd written my first novel in, in, in the late 80s, which was published as a trade a paperback with a potboiler called Fat Chance by Pocket Books. And it, it was a good book, but it, it crime caper, really. Yeah. And I wrote a couple of other books. And uh, then when I got to Seattle, at the Port of Seattle, I ended up working. There was a big, the one big difference between the East Coast and the West Coast of this country, at least the Northwest and the Northeast, is mm -hmm. out here in the West Coast, they had these treaties with these uh, tribes of Native Americans, and they were guaranteed fishing rights because of the treaty. And so, in in the harbors here in in, in the Northwest, Vancouver and, and Tacoma and Seattle. Native Americans also fish for salmon right in the harbor among where all the commercial ships are. So the amount of coordination is unbelievable. And oftentimes it's not very nice and it's, and nobody hears about this really, but so I ended up um, in the port of Seattle working a lot with a couple of local tribes trying to negotiate agreements for how they could fish for salmon and the ships coming and going without destroying the fishing gear and everything. And that's, that's when I learned, <laughs> that's when I learned uh, from the, the tribes that their ancient legends are that they've always been here. They didn't come over here on the Bering Land Bridge, which sort of makes them the most recent people, which some people would consider an insult. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. they think they've always been here. And I was really interested with this. And so I started toying with the idea of, could I write a story based on research about, could it be true that people have always been here? Could it be true that modern humans rose in the Americas and went the other way, which is totally against what science would say. And, yeah. and, and so that started it. That started the, the thinking. And then as I kept working for the port, of course, when you're busy doing a day job, you don't write very much. And, mm -hmm. but then when I took, my last job at Port of Bellingham, my wife was still just gotten a job in Seattle. So we were living separately during the week and I had a lot of time at night. And so I started doing research about this story I wanted to do about this ancient legend and about, you know, was it the telling of stories that made us human beings? And I wanted to write about the Olympic National Park because I, um, done so much hiking there and I love the it's just an amazing place and I wanted to write a coming of age story about how a young person who became a young ordinary young girl could discover her power in a completely impossible weird way so I ended up thinking about all this and doing all this research and and then I got fired from my job up in Bellingham because I couldn't get along I couldn't get along with one of the commissioners up there I, I kind of picked a fight with them and I knew I would lose. And so what I did then, not being the most logical person, was I, but I had to keep working. I wanted to keep working. So I got my seaman's papers and I went back to sea as a merchant sailor <laughs> on big ships and big container ships and military ships. So the next four years I spent on ships. And 
during that time, I was taking notes and doing research. And when I, I finally started writing the stories toward the end of that, and that's what I've been doing since. So Adrift came from the Native American legends then. I'm sorry, uh, Strongheart, that's the one I meant. Let me clarify one thing right away, because these days you can get in trouble if you don't. I am not Native American, okay? Mm -hmm. There's some rumor in my family that that's not the case, that there actually years and years ago there was, but you couldn't prove it. I'm not Native American, and I was very careful to not use any known legends of any tribe, because that's not fair. That's kind of appropriating their culture. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote about the first people in the Americas, maybe even before there were tribes. I mean, I'm talking 50,000 years ago, 15 or 20,000 years ago. But the legend of almost all first peoples in the Americas that they've always been here mm -hmm. is what I wanted to toy with. Because that, that feeds into where did humans come from? How did modern humans arise? Did it happen in Africa? Did it happen in China? Did it happen in both places? Did it happen once and then spread out? Did it happen several times and then sort of merge? Nobody really knows. And exactly. now the theory is that they arose in Northeast Africa and moved to the rest of the world. But human beings, bipedal creatures with a large brain, anatomically modern human beings have been walking around on the earth for almost half a million years. But people evidence of modern behavior, you know, burials and artwork and good technology and stuff is only about 100,000 years old. So what happened that made the change their behavior? Because their bodies didn't change, their brains didn't change. So that's the kind of, that was what I was playing with. But, but, you know, that was, there were a whole bunch of things I was trying to do. So the first story was really, it's just a story. It's a, it's a general fiction, maybe women's fiction, it's, it's got magic realism in it, and it's an adventure. It's this, you know, this young girl who sees something and nobody believes she sees it, then she disappears, and then she comes back with this impossible story, and that's when the story begins. The adventure really begins because she has this dream, and she comes back with some skills that she didn't have before she took the dream, and nobody can make sense of it. And some, <laughs> So I played with that. So that, that was the first book. Mm -hmm. I mean, this may be more detailed than you, than you want. But, no, no, go right ahead. But, I'm but, interested. So, but when I wrote the first book, when I, wrote the, I took a writing course after mm -hmm. I got back from my first 200-day trip at sea on a commercial ship. I thought, if I'm serious about this, I ought to take a writing course. So I took this writing course. And the first class, the teacher said, before we even introduced ourselves, spend 10 minutes writing. And that's when I started the book. In those 10 minutes, I started the first chapter of Strongheart is almost word for word what I wrote in that writing class. What was it? Eight years ago now. And then I, I wrote the whole first draft in like three months. Then it, wow. took, then it took three years to get it right. That's the way I do it. It takes three years. So, but when I wrote the first book, <clears throat> I had a different frame. By frame, I mean a kind of a plot structure. And the frame was the frame that Joseph Conrad uses in the book Heart of Darkness, where a number of men go out onto a little pilot boat and they have to wait for several hours until the tide turns so they can get out to the ship to take their journey. And while they're waiting for the tide to turn, 
this guy tells the story about Kurtz and the jungle and the heart of darkness. So the frame I wrote was, I used a similar frame, only my frame was this lifeboat crashes ashore on Haida Gwaii, which is this island off Canada. And, the, and they're just trapped. It's the middle of winter. They're trapped. They got to cross the mountains for safety and they can't do it because of the snow. And they're just trying to survive. And so one of the, the mate says to one of the characters, William, who was born on Haida Gwaii as a Haida, Haida Indian before he ran away to the States. He says, tell us a story, William, keep us sane. And so William tells the story, which is the Strongheart story. Mm-hmm. But then when I was first trying to market the book, I hate marketing anyway, but it's, it's hard. <laughs> it was a, the book was a little bit long. It was a little bit complicated. So what I did was I stripped out the frame, the guys in the lifeboat and what happened to them. And I just told the story of Sarah appearing at her grandfather's door. And he doesn't even know he has a granddaughter. And they take her on this hiking trip and have this adventure. What happened to the daughter that the father wouldn't know that he had a grandchild or the son? Well, so in the, in the story, Tom, mm-hmm. in the story that I write, Tom gets back from Vietnam in 1965 or six. He ends up knocking up his former high school girlfriend. He, he gets back from Vietnam. He gets her pregnant. He marries her because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And it doesn't work out because he's a fisherman. He's never there, right? She mm-hmm. dumps him. She hooks up with another guy. Then she, and he loses touch with her. And he gets divorced. And he's divorced from his uh, first wife, Ruth. Later on, he learns from Ruth that he loses touch with her. He learns from Ruth that his daughter has died of cancer. His, his daughter was raised by his ex-wife, so he didn't see much of her, right? And he never saw her. Then he lost touch with her. Then he learns she's dead only when his ex-wife tells him many years later and he doesn't know nor did she know that she'd had this daughter sarah and sarah after her mother died her stepfather mitch and mitch has it gets a job in europe and sarah decides to go and find her grandmother and she goes and that's how she finds her that's how she finds her grandfather because she goes she goes to her grandmother and lasts about a week there and they they hate her and she hates it and then she finds her grandfather, knocks at his door and says, I'm your granddaughter. No, no, her, 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 his ex-wife brings her to his, her ex-husband's door, Tom, and says, here, you take her. I'm done with her. And that's how they end up with her. He doesn't even know he has a granddaughter. So he takes wow. her. So anyway, back, back to, so when I finished Strongheart, I had another job. And now I'm in Cleveland doing a thing with the Port of Cleveland and having to do with shipping company out there. And I, again, I had some time. And I had all these pages from the lifeboat crashing ashore. And I started thinking, well, what happened? And how did that lifeboat end up having to crash ashore? What happened to the ship? And then what happened to the people in the lifeboat? And so that's what I, I that became the second book, Adrift. Yes. And that happens four months after the first story, Strongheart, right? And so the Strongheart, they have their adventure. Four months later, the ship burns and... One of the characters from Strongheart, William, this this old Haida Indian, is a sailor and he goes missing and they all go looking for him. And that's Adrift. And then the third book, Totem, is the following summer back in the park. There's a mining company that's wanting to mine this mineral and they, you know, there are artifacts being stolen and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the third book is again back in the park with all these characters trying to come to the eventual conclusion. (laughs) 
when you write your characters like Sarah, what prompted you or what is her soul? What's her essence in this? How did you picture her? Well, I, there's several answers to that. Originally, when I was trying to think, and I don't outline very much before I write, I just try to look at, I was trying to outline something. And originally it was going to be a young teenage boy who has this adventure. And then I thought, no, there aren't enough stories about courageous young girls who do something heroic. And so I wanted to write a series where the women were the heroes, not the men. And I think I've done that. Partly that's because my wife, had said, Randa said, you know, she said, there aren't a lot of stories about young girls doing the same things that boys do and doing them better. You know, I mean, just plus the other thing is that one of my sons, he didn't have an easy, but he had a difficult time, but he had some friends and one of his friends was a young girl who was a year younger than him. Her name wasn't Sarah, but it was close to Sarah. Sarah's not modeled after this girl, but this girl, I remember she's 13 years old. She runs away from home. She's living on the street in Portland, Oregon, and she survives. And I remember always thinking, and I met her and I liked her and she was sort of friendly with my son. And I thought, what a life, what courage for somebody to do that. I wanted to write about someone who was, who just wasn't fitting in very well and was having difficulty and didn't think anybody wanted her. I mean, you know, her, she left her father, her mother died. She's with her stepfather. You know, she, Nobody wants her. My picture of her is of someone who has a real strong desire for life and a big heart, but she's suspicious and angry because she knows the world is out to get her. Because that's the way it is for a lot of people. And so she's at that age. You know, so she's she's a fighter, but she's not a victim. You know, she's not someone who goes, Oh, poor me, you guys are screwing me. She's a fighter. She she tries to find the way through it. Mm-hmm. rather than succumb to it, right? That was her character. And later in my books, I have another couple of teenage characters. And I have, do have one character in the third book, the son of the mining company's project manager, who's this fat 15-year-old boy named Jared, who's much weaker and clumsier than his athletically cut best friend, Connor, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to, again, have a situation where this kid could find his... I mean, we all have to find our power. If we're lucky, we find something that we're really good at. And how do you find that and develop it? And, and so I'm always intrigued with the journey someone takes from being a bumbling idiot to finally having a, a skill. And it always involves disappointment, humiliation, and criticism and shame, which never gets talked about very much. I can talk now about all these characters and it it can all sound very well thought out and intricate, but the truth is I had no idea. I mean, I just started telling the story and these people, for me, once these people are real to me, it's easy to write about them. I just write about what I see. I mean, I see, I literally see it. And I'm just describing what I see. <laughs> that's fascinating because they also said sh- that's how Shakespeare wrote. He just reported what he what he saw. I visualize it first. If I don't, vi- if I can't visualize it, I can't write it. Right. Well, I'm the, yeah, I'm the same way. I, it, so part of the, I mean, I did this huge amount of research. I mean, there's big sections in two of the three books that are either dreams or memories or real time travel and all from a period back the height of the Ice Age. And I'm not talking 12,000 years ago. I'm talking 60,000 years. I'm talking a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And my whole thesis 
which I don't see written about very much, but I think is valid, is that it's never reported that primitive hunter, hunters and gatherers, or, you know, when humans were few before we had farming, they were not the apex predators on the planet. You know, they were, they were trying to survive from these nasty big animals the same as everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so I think humans had to live in refuges or on islands or very protected areas so they wouldn't get devoured by these animals. And I'm thinking many, many times whole communities were wiped out. Whole groups of people died out. The only place, I think the only place people could survive back then was along the coast where seafood was available for taking. Yes. And now and then you might go inland to hunt, but there were these dire wolves and short-faced bears and saber-toothed cats and big hyenas. And I mean, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> you're not going to win against them. <laughs> you're not going to win. So it was a different a different situation. And, and part of what came from all this research was this feeling that if you're not the apex predator, you have a very different perspective on the world around you. You're much more humble. You're much more cautious. You're much more accepting of unfortunate stuff that happens you 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 your wisdom come you you know you learn to look and listen and, and and you're careful but then we get arrogant you know we get we think we can do anything i mean now we think now we think people talk seriously about doing things like putting reflectors up in the space in orbit to heat the earth or cool the earth i mean talk about to me that's technologically maybe we can do it but we don't have the slightest clue about whether that would kill us or help us. But we, but because we can do it, we're going to do it. Well, Yeah, it's like people wanting to go to Mars. Now, granted, I love space and everything, and I'm curious about that. But what about taking care of this beautiful planet that we're on? Exactly. I mean, it's like what you're going to go and try to change the atmosphere of Mars that's going to take 300 years minimum. How about yeah. taking care of this beautiful planet? I mean, if you look at our planet from outer space, it's stunning. I know. It's I know. gorgeous. I know. And we don't take care of it. What do we want to do? Go to Mars and in 300 years start destroying that too? It's scary. And yet I also find that people are starting to turn around and want to take care of the environment. You have like a dichotomy in that area. I think you're right. I mean, I think that, well, it's all very complicated because we are complicated as a species. Mm -hmm and it's a complicated society. When I started writing my series, I just, in the end, I just want to tell a story that the reader falls into. You know what I mean? And if, if at the end of the story, the reader says, I couldn't put it down, that's all you can ask for. That's all you yes. can ask for. But if at, the end, if, if at the end of the story, they also put the book down and they don't want it to end, and they're thinking, could some of that stuff he was writing about be true? Because that really, you provoke them a little bit. That's the best you can do, right? That's the best you can do. There's lots of ways to skin a cat. I think through fiction, I mean, if you have a social agenda, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you could bang people over the head or try to frighten them into taking your point of view, or you can tell a story that might open their mind to thinking about things a little bit differently. Like maybe, you know what, maybe we don't know everything. One of the things I wanted to do originally in this, these stories was I wanted to write about what I think is the, the eighth deadly sin, or maybe the first deadly sin, and that is, in my opinion, zealotry. Because people who are zealous are convinced they're right, 
they they know they're right they can't listen to anybody else and they try to impose their view on everybody else yes. whether it's on the left or the right they're both equally dangerous i think mm-hmm. i think we need more humility i think we just need more willing to listen a little less certain about you know, do what you can but anyway, that's what this podcast is all about, because it's about asking yourself the questions. I'm not going to tell you how to think, but ask yourself the questions, because we don't know everything. It seems like I've gotten older and I know less than I ever did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I was young, I knew everything. Now I know nothing. You know, it's just asking the questions. I, have you been thinking correctly? What I find is when you do ask those self-reflecting questions, your creativity flourishes and you get all those ideas for stories like what if, right? what if this happens? Well, what? Because now you're open to it. Right, right, right. You're not being narrow minded. And I really find that being open minded and more understanding of people really, it helped me with my creativity. I think that I've I've tried to read some definitions of of humility and one of the definitions of humility is uh, one one definition is you don't put yourself first another definition is you admit you don't know everything another definition is you're open to other ideas you consider them right and i think you can't have wisdom without a lot of humility i mean in, from the standpoint of when you have situation we're in a world right now where people are I, this is i'm getting a dangerous territory here but <laughs> We're in the world right now where it seems that people are convincing themselves that their ideology defines what's true mm-hmm. rather than what's before their very eyes. You know, and people say, you know, now it seems that we're in an area where you can't, you know, people argue about every scientific theory that's accepted is questioned. And I'm not saying that's wrong because most scientific theories change. So if you have people, people convinced that the world's a certain way, they can't see anything except that narrative. And that means they can't grow, they can't understand anything. And I, I think, I mean, my take on this is, okay, what's cold, okay? Well, I'll tell you what, what's cold is when you and I go outside and it's 32 degrees, we're going to both die of hypothermia. I might last longer than you or you might last longer than me, but we're both going to die because yeah. it's too cold. You can't, if your ideology says cold doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You're going to die. As we seem to be moving away from that, I just don't, I don't think, this is even more dangerous, I don't think that when, when a subject becomes so incendiary that you can't talk about it, just like you can't talk about certain religious beliefs, mm-hmm. then I think you're kind of lost because then you can't really consider things. And now certain scientific issues have become almost religious. I think the arguments about climate change for some people, it's like a religion. If you have, are at all skeptical of anything to do about what is said about climate change, you're immediately typed as a right-wing, closed-minded, corporate-supporting villain, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't buy the program the way I define the program, or look at the latest thing that's been going on about this COVID and this vaccine and where the vaccine came from. And some people think this is... So the only point I'm making with all this is it's not one thing's right or wrong. It's that people... When you lose the ability to consider what the other point of view is, then you're kind of doomed. And what I tried to do in my third book, particularly Totem, mm-hmm. there's an incident in the in Totem in one of the dreamscapes from earlier on where the people back then have convinced themselves 
of something so much that they completely uproot their entire group because they're con they've convinced themselves it's going to be this way and they're wrong mm -hmm. right because you never you know remember the the year 2000 <laughs> yeah, <2K>? yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i was well i was working for the port of seattle and we spent a fortune trying to protect from that but yeah, yeah so i in the end if i guess i'd say what i was what i've tried to do this and this wasn't really conscious this kind of happened Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to suggest gently to my readers that maybe some of this ancient wisdom is truly wisdom and it's real. You know, we humans have been on this earth for a million years and there were wise people back then. It's not like we're rediscovering everything and maybe a little humility might help. And maybe we ought to be just a little less certain about how everything's going to be this way or that way. Maybe then we can grow a little bit and listen. I'm not sure I'm right, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I really feel that it's all fear-based. Right. Because if it's not what we understand, then our life is over. We're not sure-footed anymore. And it's not that. I mean, I've had my perceptions and I've changed them. Right. You know, I grew up believing a certain way. And as I've researched, I'm like, wow, it's really almost the same thing said, but in different ways ways of how to be more enlightened is where I'm going with this. For me, I, I grew up in New England mm -hmm. and my family's been in New England forever. I mean, they, they go back 300 years in Vermont, mostly Western Massachusetts and Vermont. And I've been in a lot of New England graveyards. Mm -hmm. And the one thing you notice when you go to a New England graveyard and a family is buried there, there might be seven or eight little bitty tombstones of children who didn't get past the age of four. Wow. And my parents who were born in 1912 and 1914. Mm -hmm. My father remembered the 1918 flu. He was a little six-year-old boy then. They remembered growing up in a time when diphtheria and tuberculosis, I mean, right? I mean, yes. my, father's, my father's sister, Eleanor Lundy, I think she was one of the first people in, what was it, 1941, who took penicillin to see if it worked as like an antibiotic. I mean, penicillin was invented, what's that, 80 years ago. Here's the thing. Our memories are so short. Up until, say, 1950, the human condition was a lot of childhood death, a lot of disease, short lives, right? Lots of natural disasters, floods, fires, wars, right? But in the last 70 or 80 years, which is two or three generations, all these vaccines have been found, no more smallpox, no more polio, right? Yes. We think we can all live the perfect life and live to be 110. We have all these wonderful technological things that make our lives easy. It engenders a very different view of what is actually going on than probably for most of the rest of the world where they're still suffering. And I don't know about you, but mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you in any great detail what my grandparents did day to day in their lives. And I bet very few people can say much at all about, or even know what their great grandparents did, where they lived, who they married, what standard of living they had, what they had in their house. We're, our memory is, is limited to what we hear from firsthand survivors. When I was a little boy, I mean, I'm dating myself, but when I was a little boy, there was a veteran's home around the corner from where we went some summers. And there were men in that veterans home who'd been victims of gas attacks in 1917 and 1918. 
And they were men who were then in their 50s. I mean, they weren't old, they weren't old men. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we, we think we know everything. But on the other hand, our direct memory of what's really been going on is limited to our own experience and maybe what other direct advisors tell us. So it's no wonder when people rewrite history that we forget things. Yes. I'm very nervous because I think, I mean, it used to be, here's another thing. It used to be before, and this is also kind, kind of in my story, the whole thesis that there was the telling of stories that made us human beings. That's how we carried culture. That's how we taught people. And we couldn't export our memory anywhere before writing. Writing was the first form of exporting our memory. Mm-hmm. Before that, we had to retain everything up here. And the brains of humans 30,000 years ago were bigger than they are today, maybe because they needed that brain to learn all this stuff. Because if you don't learn it, how are you going to know, right? Exactly. Now, <laughs> then for five or four or 5,000 years, you have writing. Now we've got the computer. We've got the cloud. So if you and I don't need to remember anything because we can hold up our phone and Google whatever the heck it is, mm-hmm. how long do you think it's going to be before our brain starts shrinking? Because we aren't using them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> think about it. I mean, so, <laughs> so. It's really weird. It's like, Yet we have more stress. It's like, how do there's too many directions I think we're taken in versus before survival, hunt, eat, home. Now it's what can we own? Yep. Are we famous? Can we make money, provide for our families, which goes back a long ways anyway? The storytelling, TV and radio and films took that the storytelling was what replaced that that was the entertainment well that's a good point i mean uh i think i've I've seen pictures of life in the probably middle or upper class home of the 1890s you know where they're have kerosene lamps and one daughter's playing the piano and the others are playing a board game and they're reading a book that's what they did now now we're all looking at our screens the good thing is is now we can learn more international things yeah absolutely where before someone strange came into your land, you're like, what the heck? And where are yeah. they from? They speak different. They look different. I think you could say, I don't know if this is right, but it, I'd like to think, mm-hmm. just looking at some of the media on YouTube that's not mainstream media, you know, the hetero, heterodox. There's a bunch of YouTube channels that are not MSNBC or Fox. I think like Joe Rogan and crystallins. I mean, they're they're alternate news things, Mm -hmm. whether you believe it or not, they're different. People are starting to ask the question about bringing to understand the power of these narratives that are inflicted on us by, I don't know whether you'd say it's corporate power or the oligarch, whatever you want to call it. There are certain narratives, ways of describing history, ways of, of, of describing how foreign policy should be. And it's hard to poke holes in the narratives. But one of the narratives that's been very strong in this country for at least 50 or 60 years has been, and certainly since Ronald Reagan came, has been this idea that, you know, the individual is free and the individual freedom, freedom used to mean freedom from external threat and working together to counter the external threat. Now freedom means, seems to be, I can do whatever the hell I want and you can't do anything to stop me because I'm on my land to screw you. And I think that combined with a abundance of material goods, a lot of cheap stuff that's junk, but it's a lot of stuff you can buy. All of that leads to this sort of hyper 
individualized, selfish almost point of view. And so it's pretty hard to get people to be humble about anything or to do anything about anything if they're only looking out for themselves. Yes, I read a lot and I study it too. I research a lot about the psychology of issues and the belief systems and and one of the things is, is that we are so starved for humanity as a social creature that we are, that we're going back to, we need the community, we need to, and there's strength in numbers. It would be great if people would be more accepting of others. And you can write such amazing stories with that. Well, all you can do, all you can do is, I mean, I, I corresponded with one author who who did some great work about ice age plant migration and glacial refuges. Her name was Edith. She's very old when I, 10 years ago. And she told me one time, she thought that the human species was like a pest on the earth. There's just too many. They're taking everything and destroying everything. And it's just like, there's too many of us. It's a pest. And you, you know, you can get negative or you can get positive. I've often said to my friends, I'm wondering, I've said to my friends, I wonder if there's going to come a time when we're going to turn to each other and say, you remember that time that lasted from about 1760 to the year 2000? They called it the Enlightenment when people paid attention to facts and research and study and they made theories and they disproved them. Remember that before we went back to again, believing in like dogma and, you know, if you don't believe it, it's not true. I mean, I I think they're I think we as a species are very susceptible to groupthink, to almost mass, mass think in a way. Um, I mean, remember, people used to be burned at the stake if they said the earth was round. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? right? Who was that, Galileo? Yeah, I think it was, it was Galileo. Because he said he wasn't the cent- center of the universe. No, who was it? I think it was Galileo who said, or yeah, who said that. We're not the center of the universe. Didn't revolve around the the earth. And you see some of that same attitude today and people just taking a narrative and and using it for some other other end. But if, you know, unless you have, I don't know about you, but to me, I always admired most the the older people. Remember, in all primitive cultures, revere the elder people. Yes, because they have the history. They have the history and they have the wisdom. Something's happened to that. My hope is that if enough people just saying, okay, enough is enough, I'm going to do something different. Here's another thing which freaks me out. And of course, as I'm doing my books, I'm trying to find ways to at least make people aware of it's advertising, but it's not, it's just to let them know they're out there in case they want them. It's a nightmare. I mean, you know this. So if you go to Facebook, for example, now Mm -hmm. and look at your newsfeed, at least half of the stories on your newsfeed are sponsored ads. They're either suggestions from Facebook or sponsored ads from somebody. And then when you click on something that's even not even sponsored, like I'm sure you've seen these things. I can get you on NBC, NBC News in a week. You know, all you got to do is pay me 20 grand and I'll do it for you. Yeah. Everybody's selling dreams to everybody really aggressively. Everybody knows it's all BS, but mm-hmm. they still do it because they're kind of kind of desperate. So using all of this vehicle, it's almost like, all right, we're all our own little spaceship and we're going to try to get as much as we can, however we can get it. And maybe that's good for a few people, but as a society as a whole, it's it's tough because who's going to fix the bridges? Who's going to fix the roads? It makes us less trusting. Yeah. Well, that's another 
that's not something I tried to wrestle with in my stories, really. Mm-hmm. You know, but you're right. There's been, there certainly has been, I mean, I grew up, and again, I'm dating myself, but I'm, I was a kid in the 50s and in, in high school and college in the 60s. So I grew up, we just won World War II, right? We defeated fascism and the, the Japanese empire. We defeated them. People were rich. They, they thought, you know, the unions were strong. People thought, I mean, there were a lot of problems in the country then, but the, it was an optimistic point of view. And part of the optimism and the point of view was this belief that the government could do stuff for you because it, that's what they'd done, what Roosevelt did during the Depression, you know, because there was nothing else was happening. And so there was this view that, in moderation, of course, that, you know, Eisenhower, Eisenhower a Republican, did the interstate highway system, this enormous project all over the country. Mm-hmm. And something's happened to that. Um, I mean, you know, the idea that, you know, for many, many years now, people have been talking about, you know, that if you work for public service, you're a freeloader, you're a bum, you're a, right? And if so you if you work have, for them or you use them? Well, if you work for people, people basically, if you're a public employee, you got it easy, you don't work very hard, you know, if, if, and so. You also don't make a lot of money. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you're you know, a major politician, you can, but the regular. I remember, well, my, my father, <laughs> my dad worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service and he didn't make anything. I remember he came home in like 1959 and said, I got a raise, you know, now we can think about having steak once in a while. I mean, you know, it, was, it wasn't, we weren't poor by any means, but he was very conscious of this. And then in the 60s, under McNamara, during the Vietnam War, they couldn't get people to work for the government because they weren't paying well enough. So they raised government salaries somewhat. It's still not much, right? But this back side of that was, in exchange for not getting paid a lot of money, you got two things. Well, three things. You got a pretty good healthcare system, which people didn't think about then. You got job security in your low-paying job. And when you retired from your job, you had a, a retirement you could l- live on in a pension. Well, all of that's starting to come apart for different reasons. You're, as I'm just I'm taking a long time to echo what you're saying, that... <laughs> That if people lose trust in the basic fabric of the society that they've created, we're in the dark ages. I'm, I'm telling you, we're back in the dark ages. Because <laughs> yeah, you're going to have upheavals. You, you are. That's yeah. exactly right. So Again, so my selfish point of view, I want people to understand that maybe if you read a few stories that are a little bit uplifting, it might help people in having a little faith and having an optimistic view. I mean, if you can't show heroic acts in real life, you can show them through fiction in a way that means something to people. Because if nothing else, for most of our existence, that's how we learned with fables and stories that weren't true, but told truth. Yes. You know, that's sort of what I tried to do. I mean, when I, if you take the view that people became humans because we told stories back and forth to each other around a campfire or out on a boat or wherever we did it, mm-hmm. the structure of the books I've done is almost stories layered on stories a little bit like that. So hopefully the reader gets to the end of these stories, they think they've been on a journey, they've enjoyed the journey, and maybe they've learned something. Or at least they're provoked to be thinking about some things. When I read books, when I see humor that hits a subject that might be kind of iffy to talk about, it does make me think more. And I end up laughing and I'm like, oh my God, I thought that way. (laughs) I do like a journey. I love to see a character just evolve and learn 
because they take you on that ride where you want to evolve and learn also. Well, there's a whole, and I've got notebooks here somewhere. There's a whole thesis about the arc of the human development where the, basically you start out, you learn, you reach a point where you reach, you have some crises, you struggle with the crises and you reach resolution. And if you're lucky when you're old, you feel you did okay and you had a decent journey and you and if you're not lucky you're haunted and you die lonely and unhappy because you know that you you didn't do what you wanted to do and that's very hard for people yeah and then if you talk about the the quest of the hero in the story it's the same way they they start out they have a setback another setback a crisis then there's a thing they have to you know they is it a do or die and then they do it when i structure my stories i think other people do this but I have the way I, my stories work, I have many characters. Mm-hmm. So instead of having it all told by one character or two characters, I have three or four characters who all have their own storyline within the story. I like that. The, the way it's set up is the time moves in a completely linear fashion, but the point of view changes in the same story, a little bit like all the people describing the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. And The other thing I did was I realized that if I'm going to tell a story that way and I have characters telling parts of the story, each character has to have their own arc of challenge and development and resolution. Or you, the reader, will know that I'm just using that character to move the story along. And you're not going to be interested in that. You aren't going to care about that character. You're You're only going to care about, in the third book, my character, Jared, makes a big mistake throwing knife at a tree and he injures an animal and they have to kill the animal. And so he's vilified for screwing up with the knife. And so his challenge is how does he, what happens that he can kind of recover from that? And the way he recovers is an un- unbelievable at the end, but that's the arc, you know, and Sarah's arc, the girl Sarah is, is she ever going to find a home? Is she ever going to find a place that she can call her own when no one's wanted her? Is she going to find someone who wants her? And the, these are arcs that are all going on in the, in the same story about, will this mining company destroy this valley? The numbers today are terrifying. There, I think there are 50 million books out there. There are something like 70,000 books a year are published. How do you get noticed? How does anybody get noticed? You know, And I'm struggling with that every day. And, and you've got to spend a little bit of money, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think what you, and I'm talking to myself as I talk to you because I, I hate this part of it, but you have to end up saying to yourself, you know what, most of my hours I spent writing this book and when I was doing that, I was in this wonderful place of watching the story happen and that's a gift that no money can buy. Exactly. And now you're in the horror of trying to get it out there and as long as a few people read it and if you get one or two people come to you and say, oh, I just couldn't put it down, that's like getting the Academy Award. You know, and if somebody famous or influenced gets a hold of the book and starts talking about it and then everybody picks up on it, then you've hit the kind of gold mine that's totally dependent on luck. Or no, you could be, I guess this guy, Jake Tapper, who was a reporter for MSNBC, wrote a fiction book. And of course, because he's on national TV, he's been all over the place because he's got those connections. Most of us don't have those connections. I mean, I've said to people before, being a writer is basically, you know, moments of euphoria followed by months of humiliation. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's true because, you know, I love the writing part myself, 
Yeah. And I'm very outgoing and all of that, but people are not going to buy your books if they don't know they exist. Exactly. So you exactly. have to go out there and be part of that big advertising media and try to get your book noticed. And it's not easy. It's not easy, especially I write poetry. Well, so that's, you, yeah. that's a hard one. Well, I'm focusing on, I'm, I've decided, I mean, I try, I've been trying this and I'm not very good at it. I'm in Washington. I write about the Olympic Peninsula. I'm a Pacific Northwest local author. Mm-hmm. So my logical area to try to find readers is here in the Northwest with independent bookstores in the Northwest, with readers in the Northwest, mm-hmm. right? That's what I do. I can't go national because how do you go national? You know what I mean? Yeah. I've got a few irons in the fire that might get more notice than you'd think, but the odds of that happening are almost non-existent, right? So I've kind of made a decision. I, I talked to my wife about this a little bit. You know, okay, I've got the, I finally have the series finished, which is a big deal to me. Yeah, I've that's got a, huge. I've got, a, I've got a piece of work done. And I know, you know, when you're writing a series and you haven't finished it yet, you don't know if you're going to finish it. I'm sorry. And you don't know if it's going to be any good. Well, now I've got it done. It's the best I can do. And I'm happy with it. Right. Other people seem to like it. And now I've got something I can go to a bookstore and say, look, here's three books. If you put these books on a table and people see the cover, they're going to look at it because they do. They People pick them up because the, the woman who designed the covers is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all of a party. I said, you could s- sell the set on some kind of a special to get all three of them for 20% off or something. Mm-hmm. Big gift for people, that sort of thing. Will this work? I don't know if it'll work. I could spend four podcasts with you talking about the things I've tried to do to promote the book, including, including four years ago with 200 books in my trunk, driving 8,000 miles around Washington, uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana, visiting 150 bookstores saying, here, do you want this book? And some people said, sure. And other people said, the book buyer isn't here. And other people said, who the hell are you? I mean, it wasn't a cost-effective way of going about it, right? Yeah. I I did that by contacting bookstores and just telling them, hey, I'll give you a book. You look at it, you sell it, you make the money. I'm going to gift it to you, but can you put it up? That's what I did. Yeah, I go, and if it sells, then, you know, you could buy some from me. I did, I did that. And I, I, I would say out of the 150 stores I went to, one bookstore owner wrote, wrote back and said, I read your book and didn't like it. One. One. That's pretty like, good for 150. Yeah. I gave out maybe 100 of them on consignment. Mm-hmm. And over three years, almost all of them sold. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is, that's encouraging. But you it know is. what? I'm not going to raise a family on that. No. <laughs> I think if you're a writer, you have to do it because you love it. It's just like being an actor, you know, being an actor, you have to do it because you love it because you're going to get disappointed or you're you're driven to it. I mean, yeah, it's it's, just, you know, I I seem to be driven to things that don't make money. (laughs) I love the acting. I love the uh, writing books and writing poetry. I my next book I'm working on is it has short stories. And then I'm going to try to elaborate on one of my books, one of my poetry books, because it actually is like a novel, but I did it in poetry. Nice. So I'm going to try to make it an actual novel. Nice. Yeah. I have enough research. Are you in San Francisco? I am in Los Angeles. I just hope and this is just a foolish hope. Mm-hmm. And maybe this COVID has been helpful in one sense on that is I kind of hope 
that people have, have kind of, you know, maybe, maybe this rat race to hell with this rat race. You know what I mean? I just, I kind of like to just read a book and watch the apple tree grow and do yeah. something. Uh, I think the COVID hitting really helped people question their lives. I think for some people. I also think, though, that... Made other ones really angry. <laughs> well, then I also think that there's a whole group of people, and we're in that group, and I don't know whether it's the people who make the top 20% or the, whatever the percentage is, but there's a, tens of millions of people who are just... They don't have time to think about anything but struggling to get... Buy. Yeah. You know, all this, I mean, you know, all these people talking about, you know, you give people unemployment and they won't, you know, they're not going to go back to work because they're getting rich and 300 bucks a week. And, and it's just even here in Tacoma, I go around, you look at the, every little convenience store you go to run by a family, most of them are foreign families, but the, the whole family works there and they work ungodly hours. And I, don't tell me they're sitting they happy, you. you know? So I think that somehow, and I don't know how this happens, but somehow people will find a way to spread out some of this largesse to where it really needs to go. You know, and yeah. I, I don't know how that's going to happen. Probably with oh. pitchforks in the streets is probably the way, way it'll happen. Yeah, and we have here in Los Angeles such a bad homeless. Well, it's bad here in Seattle. It's bad in Tacoma. It's bad everywhere. I mean, under every freeway underpass, both sides. Really? Full of, it's almost, and I live by the freeway, so it's, it's really sad. I don't even know how that could be fixed, honestly. It's just, I wish I had a solution to give people, and I just, how do you do that? How do you fix our rents and the cost of living is so ridiculously high in Los Angeles? How are you going to help people? I was just going to say, here in Tacoma, right down the street here, not a quarter mile away, there's a homeless community in a church parking lot, but it's run very strictly. It has managers there. People have standards. If they don't meet the standards, they're thrown out. Mm -hmm. There's some talk going on now about, which means spending money building housing. And if you're homeless, your choice is, you don't have a choice. You have to go, and you, you got to take a room here. That's it. You can't be in the street. You're in this room. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people, because the big problem, I think, the percentages of people who are homeless, who are alcoholic or drug addicted or have mental health issues or other health issues is enormously high. I mean, it's not like it's a difficult situation. And again, I don't know what the answer is. I don't either. <laughs> I, it's like I look at them and I wish I could help, but I don't even know if you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime. But if you feed yeah. him, he only eats for a day. Yeah. I can't blame the politicians because if I have no solution either. You know, it's one thing if you have an idea and you're ignored, but if, when you don't even have an idea, how can you even make a judgment? Well, the other, the other piece is up here in Seattle, of course, they tried some experiments with that didn't work very well. I mean, you know, you get these ideologically driven solutions that anybody looking at it from the outside is going to tell you that's just not going to work, but they try it anyway and it doesn't work. Yeah. I hate to say this, but, you know, there, you, one, I, I can see us getting to a point more like it was in the Middle Ages, which is you just accept that people die outside. You just accept that you lock people you lock people up if they're homeless, like what they used to do in the poorhouse. That's what they called. And people find a way to accept it. It's awful to say that, but at least in many years in this in this country, while we are still expanding, mm -hmm. right? All that high testosterone, uneducated, angry, young 
men mostly, were out in the wilderness cutting down trees for the settlers, fighting the Indians. But now we've got no wilderness, so they're all here among us. You know, yeah. you know what yeah. do you do? <laughs> they're in the gangs. I mean, they're all in gangs now. I and mean, that's the same, it's the same group in a sense. Young guys with a lot of energy and nothing to do. And oh yeah, and and non-acceptance. I actually did a podcast on a poet. He works a lot with the incarcerated, and what he's noticed is that a lot of them are super creative, but had no outlet. So it created the anger, which created the the gangs made them a family because they felt unaccepted, and so it just perpetuated. And then they ended up in jail, and now they're writing, and they had a show of acting. And he says some people come with like a you know couple books they already wrote. In jail. My son started painting when he was incarcerated, and that's how he learned the skill. And I've been to prisons a few times to do readings with my books. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. So, you know, a lot of these guys are just so happy to see a strange face, right? They're just so happy someone's there, and it's just heartbreaking. Every time I've done, gone, there's always been at least one or two guys there who immediately starts working the con, you know, like, well, why don't you do this with your book? Why I mean, he's immediately trying to find the angle to make. it's just amazing they have to use that creativity somehow (laughs) but that's what he said he goes you know he gets come across many people that he thinks are just frustrated creative people that were not accepted and so well it's not creativity is not something that is offered or supported in anyone but people in elite schools i think in some ways right so that if you're a child of a working class family where you're expected to eventually go out and work on the railroad or whatever, you're not going to get a lot of help being creative. I, I grew up poor. Didn't know I was poor when I was a kid. We were right. working poor. You know, my family worked in factories and I've always been creative, but I think a lot of it came where I felt it was okay because my school, I had a teacher named Mrs. Lerner and she was super creative and she actually inspired me and supported me in my creativity. So having someone to believe in you, I think, really makes a huge difference in in pursuing it. And it makes you be more creative and be able to be in the arts, like writing like we do. As you talk, and I, I would say two things. One, I think any every person who, almost everybody, but every person who does anything creative in any level will talk of one or two teachers who inspired them, I think. And the other thing I'm thinking is, and back if you go back to my book, Strongheart, and this girl, mm-hmm. Sarah, She's in this wilderness trip with her grandfather and his friend William and William's daughter, Myra. And only William believes Sarah. And she loves him for that. You know, she, I mean, the the bond there, because he believed in this broken kid, you know, that I believe what you saw was true, Sarah. Yeah. Whether he really believed doesn't matter that she saw, he believed it. And that meant so much to her, you know, the power of that belief of an elder and, you know so. right because it's someone that doesn't think you're crazy doesn't think you're making something up allows you to be creative right and you never know i mean i was blessed that my mom said get an education and even though she goes well you know you're like the the super creative one but her family were all musicians so yeah. she comes from a creative background too she was very accepting and says if that's what you really want to do then okay but you're not going to make much money <laughs> yeah that's the yeah, my old my old man, my father would say to me, what he did was he, it's a long story, but he ended up working in an industry he didn't enjoy very much until World War II came along and that saved him because he went in the army and then he went to graduate school after the war. And he said to me, you know, 
find out find something you enjoy doing if you're going to spend all those hours doing and i took them way too literally so i like fishing so i went fishing you know and that doesn't necessarily translate into a nice rock hard career to get a multi-million dollar but you know what i got some good stories out of it and, and yeah. that's that's fine <laughs> and I, I find that with life, you feel fulfilled. I was one of these people because I heard my family always say, I should have, could have, would have. I said, I never want to say I could have, should have, would have, because I want to at least try or yep. work at it. And and the word try, you got to watch that too, because I'm trying to do this, but you're not really trying, you're actually doing it. So I have done it. And, you know, so I was successful in some, and some of them I fell flat on my face. It's what it is. And it doesn't, I don't know. I don't feel bad about not being successful in some things because I think I learned so much. I think my soul got enriched. I got ideas for stories. I, I meet amazing people on this podcast like you. There's so much that I'm grateful for, for the journey. I've wanted to write stories since I was eight years old. Okay. And I wrote in high school, I won some prizes. When I went fishing commercially, I wrote some articles for trade papers and was published. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, I tried starting a novel when I was in my 20s. And I realized I tried first starting a novel when I was in my early 20s. And I realized I haven't lived enough to write about anything, right? I just don't know enough. So I stopped. And then I later on got another story and I, I wanted to do a novel. And, and I just, again, I, I couldn't quite do it. Finally, when I was 40, this guy wrote a published a novel and I thought, well, Jesus, if he can do it, I can do it, which is not mm -hmm. the best attitude. And, but I, but I started and I ended up because I knew a guy who was a writer and he had an agent and I gave it to him. Anyway, got the story Fat Chance published in like 1991. I'm 44 years old. Now, so now mm -hmm. it's 30 years later, I'm 74 years old. I've got these three books done, right? Mm -hmm. And now the, the earlier novels I did, they're good books. I mean, people enjoy them and they like them. This, if I croak tomorrow, I'll figure, okay, I, at least I got something done that is as good as I could do. Whether anybody else thinks it's good or not, it doesn't matter. It's as good as I could do. I got the right art designer. It's, so how many years is that? 60 years, 65 years I've been trying to do this? Persistence. What I think what elderly people who've passed on would say if they could talk to us is, it isn't whether you're successful or not. That's the measure of your success. It's yeah. whether you kept at it. That's the because because unless you keep at it, you'll never do it. No. And if you keep at it and you don't do it, you've learned keeping at it. Again, it's like the older you get, the less judge, judgmental maybe you are, and uh, yeah. the more kind you are to think. You know, now I understand why he kept doing that all those years because it was something that he had to do. And it brings joy, even if it goes nowhere. I've been writing poetry since I was a little kid. Granted, you know, they started out with red, roses are red, violets are blue, but I have some of them still. Yeah. I, they're really bad and they need to major editing, but I would write poetry because it was emotional and I throw it in a drawer. Yep. So what I realized is that this time around with writing, I want to be of service. I have to find ways to be of service to everyone, even the people I don't agree with. No, that, you're right. That's a great goal. I don't think I'm as lofty as you in my goal. You know, you have to be invested in the arc or whatever the story is. You know, you want to know how does it turn out? You know, does he get the prize or not? Yeah. I mean, you want to know because you care about the character. And you're only going to care about the character if you understand the challenge the character is facing. You I know? think that's true. If you want to keep the interests of the audience 
you do have to make interesting characters. You really do, because I feel that, well, you need a good plot too. I mean, you know, you have interesting characters that go nowhere, but sometimes there's stories that are good that way. So, so I don't, I've never done an outline, but I've, but I realized with this series that three years of research is like doing a lot of outlines. If you want to make a point, you've got to be very careful that, that it's indirect and, and not, it's going to be subject to, the story has to come first, I think. Only thing that should be in those stories or that poem is directly tied to the subject at hand in some form. It, it can't be filler. It, we writers, at least this writer, Mm -hmm. tends to, especially if you don't write with an outline, you'll oftentimes write your way into a scene and that's filler you don't need. You'll often repeat yourself and you don't even know it. Yes. That's why you need, that's why you need a professional editor. <laughs> I always use an editor because they'll point out things that I don't notice. You're right. You're blind to it. You, you <laughs> are. And, you know, you have to give, if you're writing, I don't write long form yet, but I'm getting really bored with writing short form. So now I have to step up. When I write my stories, uh, you want the character to have an opinion, right? but not something that I don't like preaching to people because I don't like people preaching to me. You preach to me, I've just tuned you out. Can't preach an idea, but you can have different points of view because if there's going to be one character in your story having one, one view, you know you're going to have to have an opposing view as well. But here's what happened to me about five years ago with, with Strongheart. Uh -huh. I had two characters in the story who are both scientists and they have, and they're characters, they're fictional characters. Mm -hmm. And they're having a discussion one night around a campfire. And one of the characters is a Russian mm -hmm. who comes from Siberia is skeptical about whether the earth really were heating up because of human intervention. He thinks it's geologic that the geological has caused the ice ages. And the other character is convinced, of course, it's the humans that are doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And they're actually secretly in love with each other too and don't know it. So it's, you know, there's a lot of energy. And so they get into an argument. These are two characters. It's fiction. So I send this book to a publisher in Cambridge, was affiliated with Harvard University somehow. Mm -hmm. And they do, they do like environmental fiction. And I send them the book thinking, well, this is, and they, they get back to me and they say, we loved your book. We want to publish your book, but you've got to remove all that argument about climate change. You've got to remove, you can't have anything about, in other words, they're of the orthodoxy that said, you cannot speak of anything. You can't even have a character speak of anything contrary to our narrative, which is the earth's heating up and we're going to be cooked in 10 years unless we completely rebuild everything. Yeah. And I'm thinking, this is a fiction book. I've got two characters. So I wrote them a, how do we say this? A, Oh, thank you. I wrote, a, Thanks. I, I wrote a really hostile screed to them, telling them that, no, I'm never going to work with you. But I mean, the point was that when you're at the point where in fiction, people start telling you what you can and cannot have your characters say, mm -hmm. that's scary. That is scary. That's scary. And if we're getting there, I don't, I don't know if I want to be there. I know exactly. So... In closing, okay. what would you like to say to the audience if, about your books or about you and how they could... I would say to my audience, I, I feel like I'm the little kid along the road with a little table and my little meat pies on the table along the road, like you'd see in French Canada 60 years ago. And I'm people are driving down the road and sometimes they see the kid, oh, there's a kid with some pies. Stop, we'll look at the pies. I want people to look at my pies, my books. You know, I just, all I want people to do is look 
at totem or strongheart or adrift look them up on amazon or wherever they you know go through independent bookstores and i think if they look i'd like them to try them that's all i want you know if they don't like them fine i just want them to, to notice they're published by a company called iron twine press and you can go into any bookstore and some of them may carry them but if not you can ask order them and i would encourage people to order the books through the bookstores because i like bookstores mm -hmm. and i also have the first two and i'll have all three of them when totem's out in october it's out now you can order it now print but it, i'm gonna have a kindle or a ebook version and the ebook versions are available from kindle okay and the first two books are only 99 cents because i want people to read the first two books to get to the third book yes i have a web page which is charliesheldon2.com charlie with an ie s-h-e-l-d-o-n number two.com and they, if they go to that webpage, they can see information about the books and reviews and some other stuff I've written about hiking and sea stories and human origins and other weird stuff that I like to write about, right? My reason for trying to participate in podcasts is it's just another way to get to another audience with maybe somebody's interested enough. Plus, I'm having fun doing this. It's great to talk with people and talk about some of these issues. And I'm realizing as I go through this that there's a whole thread in the the trilogy I've done that seems to meet this kind of need I'm seeing among people for, can't we be a little more basic, a little more simple, a little more humble about what, I mean, there's wonder out there. Why can't we kind of find it and accept it and, and maybe not be quite so full of ourselves and, you know, thinking we know everything. <laughs> so, so that's my, that, that's my plea. And, and it's just, again, I just hope people would just try to take a look and make their own mind up. Really. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been really informative and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Sonia. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection podcast available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.